the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show, and uh, I want to also welcome our new affiliate, News Talk 1340 WXKX in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Welcome them to uh, welcome everybody in Clarksburg, West Virginia listening area to the program. Appreciate uh, you tuning in. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media, at least for now, at Dan Proft. President Trump weighing in today on uh, the uh, imminent, his imminent impeachment again, impeachment 2.0, House scheduled to take up uh, the article of impeachment against the president for allegedly inciting a seditionist riot, President Trump calling the charge ridiculous, calling his speech totally appropriate and saying this. What is your role in what happened at the Capitol? What is your personal responsibility? So if you read my speech, and many people have done it, and I've seen it both uh, in the papers and in the media, on television, uh, it's been analyzed, and people thought that what I said was totally appropriate, And if you look at what other people have said, politicians at a high level, about the riots during the summer, the horrible riots in Portland and Seattle and various other other places, that was a real problem, what they said. But they've analyzed my speech and my words and my final paragraph, my final sentence, and everybody to the T thought it was totally appropriate. Uh, So if there's no real basis to suggest that Trump acted illegally, he illegally uh, incited a riot, not at least according to uh, a fair read on the Brandenburg v. Ohio standard the Supreme Court set forth in 1969, in my view. And if there's not time to do it, if it's not logistically feasible before Joe Biden is inaugurated on January 20th, then um, why proceed? Uh, Is this not just a symbolic act, much as part of the criticism against electoral certification objectors on January 6th was that it was a symbolic act that was not going to affect the outcome. Dan Henninger, Wall Street Journal editorial board, was uh, editorial page editor, was on with uh, us yesterday. And um, an observation he made that I think bears repeating, uh, answering the question he posed to himself, why would Nancy Pelosi do this then? One question that I think you have to ask yourself is, why is Pelosi doing this? The country is at a white heat of emotion. No question about it. Uh, it's difficult to talk to people about this subject in any sort of rational way. Uh, we have this political bonfire burning, and she clearly is simply pouring more gasoline onto the bonfire. And uh, <clears throat> I have begun to think that Pelosi believes that there's no downside for it for Democrats. I mean, in Nancy Pelosi's world, which is electoral politics, 
you're trying to win or lose elections, and you win or lose elections by getting more than 50% of the vote or in the presidential elections, getting more electoral <laughs> votes than the other guy. And I think what the game here is, is to keep uh, the Trump issue aflame, keep him in front of the American people uh, as a contentious issue. It unites Democrats and divide, now divides Republicans. I think that's a pretty insightful political analysis. For insightful legal analysis, we're pleased to be joined again by John Yu, Emmanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Good to be back. So, uh, let, you know, the I guess you, you run the progression of questions. Is uh, there a substantive case to be made on... Uh, the incitement to riot charge, and then the question of logistics, and then the last question is really the political question that Henniger uh, spoke to. But so the legal question first, uh, in your view, were Trump's remarks in context of that day, did they constitute uh, incitement to riot, a seditious act? I don't think so. Uh, incitement is actually difficult to prove, and it doesn't look to me that uh, what Donald Trump uh, said in context constituted uh, incitement necessary to convict him of a federal crime in a courthouse. Uh, the issue, though, is that impeachment doesn't require a crime. Right. Uh, it's a, the Constitution says you can be impeached for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And when you go back and look at the founding, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors uh, includes a broader class of conduct, which includes sort of abuse of power, uh, unfitness for office, uh, th making terrible decisions at times. Um, so I think it's a close question, but I think that the House could, in its judgment, decide that President Trump had committed an impeachable offense, even though it's not criminal, even though it would be normally protected by free speech. As you said, Dan, even though in, under Brandenburg, the government couldn't criminalize what uh, Donald Trump had said at the rally. One of the one of the infirmity, infirmities of impeachment 1.0, though, with respect to Trump, was sort of these vague appeals to abuse of power per his call with the Ukrainian president, and it relied on reading of tea leaves in, in terms of the conversation and 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 taking away from that conversation something that even, for example, the Ukrainian president didn't take away from that conversation, which sort of undermined the abuse of power argument. Here, though, you know, the appeal to a a federal law seems to you know be more substantive and then it comes down to interpretation but at least there's an appeal being made to criminal law yeah i agree with that uh, you know i would say that i actually uh, when we talked during impeachment 1.0 i don't think president trump had committed an impeachable act back then uh, mm -hmm. and that there was really something to be settled at the ballot box uh, and then second and maybe more importantly is was he derelict in duty by not calling out law enforcement and the troops in a more expeditious fashion to handle the riot once you saw that it was taking place. As to the logistics uh, here, the timing, you're talking about uh, a Senate that, barring an emergency session, does not reconvene until an hour after Joe Biden is inaugurated. Um, and there's this open question. Alan Dershowitz reads it one way. There's historical precedent that suggests a another, that uh, you can't move to impeach a president once he has left office, although, again, that's not something that the court has ever weighed in on specifically. Yeah, this is, this is a hard question. I think it's a, it's a close one. I tend to be on the other side from Alan. I tend to think 
that uh, the Constitution does permit the impeachment of officers even after they've left the job. Uh, and the only reason I say that is because if you look at impeachment at the time of the founding, uh, and impeachment is completely a British constitutional practice and sort of came over uh, to the United States because we were colonies. Um, impeachment back in the British system at that time was used not just against people in office, but even people after they'd left office. But that raises the question, why bother, as you said, Dan, why bother at all? Because if the main sentence, if you're convicted of uh, of an impeachment, is just removal from office. If Donald Trump's no longer in office, we only have about a week now before he's leaving office, why bother? Um, and I think the, so the only other sanction that can arise from uh, being convicted of impeachment is being disqualified from ever holding office again under the uh, under the United States government. That's the only, re- only reason you would go through this, I think. Right. And, and that's, I mean, this is a political statement, but, uh, you know, th- the whole thing is that gives them the predicate to do something that uh, otherwise they have little basis for. I still think it, le- think it leaves them with little basis and there's not a lot of appetite for it, but it allows them to continue to use Trump to divide Republicans and, and unify Democrats, as Dan Henninger observed. Yeah, although, you know, I think there's sh- I think Democrats who go down this path are shooting themselves in the foot. I've, for several reasons. One is, you know, they're opening up impeachment uh, more and more so that it's not an extraordinary thing that's become regularized. And as we saw with Clinton, it's go- it could be just as well used against a Democratic president as a Republican president. Uh, but I, you know, and which also raises its own problems because we don't want Congress controlling presidents either through the threat of impeaching them now or later. Uh, but more uh, importantly, is you know, you it's it's an it. it it's going to keep their own administration from getting off the ground running in their first few days, in the first few months. Because once the Senate takes up a trial, which it must under the Senate rules, it has to conduct the trial every day until it's finished. And that's going to spell a lot of trouble for President Biden and his cabinet appointments and trying to get new legislation passed to get us over COVID and get the economy going. Uh, they could well, uh, you know, they, they are so, uh, I think, obsessed with Trump that they're going to guarantee that we keep talking about him for months and months, even after he's left office. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, uh, turn the discussion to uh, the president's pardon power on the way out the door, as well as the discussion of the limits of uh, big tech's censorship, if there, if there are any limits. More with uh, Emmanuel S. Heller, professor of law at UC Berkeley law school john Yu, and author of defender in chief donald trump's fight for presidential power we'll be right back it's a beautiful day grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the show. Before heading off to uh, do a review of the border wall construction today, President Trump on the tarmac also addressed the purging that's going on by big tech and corporate America generally, but uh, and not just as it pertains to him. Here's what he had to say. I think that big tech is doing a horrible thing for our country and to our country, and I believe it's going to be a catastrophic mistake for them. They're 
dividing and divisive, and they're showing something that I've been predicting for a long time. I've been predicting it for a long time, and people didn't act on it. But I think big tech has made a terrible mistake and very, very bad for our country. And that's leading others to do the same thing. And it causes a lot of problems and a lot of danger. Uh, big mistake. They shouldn't be doing it. But uh, there's always a counter move when they do that. I've never seen such anger as I see right now. And that's a terrible thing. Terrible thing. And you have to always avoid violence. And we have we have tremendous support. We have support probably like nobody's ever seen before. Always have to avoid violence. Now, Parler could probably use some of that support. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be rejoined by John Yu, Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also the author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. And, uh, Professor Yu, what about that? Uh, Short of uh, legislative action to remove Section 230 protections that insulate uh, big tech companies from liability for the content posted uh, on their platforms or via their platforms. Is there, uh, are there any uh, legal limitations to what you see big tech engaged in with respect to, uh, you know, eliminating uh, people from their platforms and otherwise regulating content on their platforms? You know, Parler shows the hard time that you're going to have under existing law to force these big tech companies to follow what I think of as just, you know, the American way of uh, free speech and letting everyone have their say and letting the people decide after they've listened to everything. Uh, because Facebook, Google, Twitter, Amazon, they're all private companies. They're allowed to keep or kick off whoever they want to from their platforms, just like, you know, you and I don't have to allow people on our front steps mm-hmm. or the, our front yard and protest uh, against things we don't agree with or for things we don't agree with. So that framework, though, makes it very difficult for Parler because, one, they claim some antitrust claim here, which I think is very hard to prove because Amazon, which just hosts their service, you know, Amazon doesn't run a messaging messenger uh, slash uh, social media site like Parler or Twitter. Um, and they, it's hard to show, I think, that they conspired with people in that space to try to drive Parler out of business. Uh, and then the second thing is, you know, maybe the better claim Parler will have was just suing Amazon under state law just for breaching their contract, just like you and I, uh, Dan, have a contract with our cable provider. (laughs) And it really depends on what the terms are there. So the harder question that you raised, Dan, is what do we do going forward in the future to force these big tech companies to play fair? And I think that's going to take some serious uh, thinking and work. It's sort of like when railroads and telegraphs and phones start, start appearing for the first time. We have to rethink all the rules that applied then. And because we're in the middle of this digital revolution, we have to do the same thing now. You know, the idea is uh, maybe not to to move the discussion away from treating them as a publisher or not a publisher, essentially say they're a public place of accommodation like a restaurant. Well, uh, that's actually what I've been thinking lately is think about railroads, for example, or airplanes. You know, they run networks, as it were. They transport people just the way that these networks now transport ideas and thoughts and communications. Uh, We wouldn't have thought, and the law was changed so that the railroad company can't say, well, we're not letting any Democrats take the train because I'm a Republican railroad owner. Uh, Or we didn't have telephone companies to say, I'm only going to let Republicans use the telephones because I'm a Republican telephone network operator. And maybe that's, as you say, Dan, that's the model we're going to eventually move to is that these uh, Facebook, Google, because they're abusing their power, abusing the trust of the people, we're going to end up increasing regulation on them and start treating them 
like as if they were railroads, buses, airplanes. Yeah, so the you know the information superhighway would treat them like you know a, a, you know a, a a super highway, like a physical one, yeah. even though it's a virtual <laughs> one, essentially. Um, I wanted to get uh, also your uh, uh, perspective on some of the discussion with respect to Trump and his pardon power. Uh, the question of whether or not Trump could pardon himself uh, on, on his and his family members on the way out the door. Uh, apparently, the reporting is that Attorney General Barr and White House Counsel Pat Cipollone have both advised against that. But this is another area that is... Uh, there's no court has weighed in on and uh, your perspective on whether or not the president could do that, whether or not he should do that. Again, it's like uh, many things in the Trump presidency and constitutional issues. It's unprecedented. <laughs> uh, I talk about it a little book in my book that you kindly mentioned. I tend to think uh, that the Constitution would allow Trump to pardon himself. He can certainly pardon his family members and other people who've worked with him. Uh, it's also not clear whether Attorney General Barr and the White House counsel were advising Trump not to pardon himself because of constitutional concerns or, or just because they think even if he can do it, it's still a bad idea. Right. Um, the constitutional text doesn't contain an exception here. It says it has only three exceptions to the pardon power for state crimes, for civil cases, you know, non-criminal cases, um, and then for impeachment. And that's it. And the founders actually knew about and thought about the idea of presidents pardoning conspirators, uh, uh, friends, and so on. And they decided not to preclude it. And they decided not to allow the pardon power to be reviewed by Congress or the courts. So given that, I, I came to the view that uh, a president here, Trump, could pardon even themselves. And so uh, important to note, and we sort of talked through this uh, impeachment 1.0 as well, that it doesn't insulate him uh, from, for example, any criminal action that could be taken by the New York State Attorney General against uh, President Trump or, or Trump world because those would involve state-level charges. Yes, as you say, the, and those are going on right now in New York State and the district attorney in New York City are conducting these investigations. It also doesn't prevent Congress from continuing to investigate Trump. The founders thought one of the great checks on the presidency uh, wasn't the criminal law, it would be politics. It would be embarrassment, humiliation, um, bad reputation, as well as uh, instead of, I think, the idea of prosecuting our former uh, presidents. And uh, but but if he pardons himself, uh, that would have what implication with respect to impeachment? Ah, So one of the uh, things that you, the Constitution clearly says you can't pardon for is impeachment. Right. So uh, Trump can't pardon. He, Trump can't get out of uh, impeachment. Uh, now, the, the trial would be extremely interesting, though, because, uh, it, again, it would be the first trial we've really had of a of a president who's left office. You know, the, the previous impeachments of presidents have been acquittals also. I, you know, the defense would be interesting. I think the defense, say, an Alan Dershowitz or someone would raise would be, uh, I think, you know, Trump didn't commit a crime. He didn't call for violence. He might have been reckless, but he didn't intend for there to be a riot. He did not intend for there to be an attack on the Capitol. Maybe he was slow in calling out the National Guard, but he eventually did. Uh, and so you're uh, almost, you know, are you really going to impeach someone after he's left office under a new president where the only thing you can do is disqualify him for future, from future office because maybe he, because he spoke recklessly in a crowd? 
John Yu, Emmanuel S. Heller, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks as always for being with us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and um, what a remarkable State of the State address St. Andrew of COVID-19 gave yesterday in New York. Listen to uh, what he had to say about... uh, where he believes New York State is at with respect to COVID-19 and getting New York State up and running again. Fourth, we must plan our economic resurgence. We simply cannot stay closed until the vaccine hits critical mass. The cost is too high. We will have nothing left to open. We must reopen the economy, but we must do it smartly and safely. Also, we must energize our lagging private sector and rebuild our economic platform, our transportation system, our infrastructure system for the next generation of growth. Let me see if I can translate that for you. I'm spending too much political capital defending lockdowns. I might not get as much dough as I need from Biden and company. The rollout of the vaccine distribution has been catastrophic, both at the state level and in conjunction with Mayor Warren Wilhelm at the city level. So it's time to pivot. And if I speak with my signature self-righteous rectitude, maybe no one will notice this 180 that I'm doing. See if I've got that about right. Joining us is Carol Markowitz. She's a columnist at the New York Post. Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks so much for having me. That's some about face by uh, St. Andrew uh, yesterday in the State of the State Address. Yeah, I love that he's so mad at whoever it is that's in charge of those lockdowns. Uh, he's really angry. So I hope we get to the bottom Somebody of it. should do something about how the state right. of New York is being run. Like, who, who's dumb idea were these lockdowns? I hope Cuomo finds out. Uh, uh, completely. Yeah, it, 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 it was hard to watch. It was, I, you know, a, a moment where I think those of us who have said these lockdowns are a disaster for months and months and months. And now he's saying it as if it's brand new information uh, has been tough. And, you know, I have to think that he's being pressured into it by the fact that New York is collapsing um, and he's going to be held accountable for it. His media uh, darling moment right now can't last forever. And eventually even CNN and even uh, the stations that are favorable to him will have to admit that he has done a bad job on every single level throughout this pandemic. I, I just hope it doesn't affect his book sales. That's really my concern. <laughs> right. Um, you know, yeah. So the, the book tour that he did where he got no tough questions at all is, is a classic example of that, where he didn't have a single moment where he was challenged on anything. And here we are, and he's confused about the state of things because he has had no pushback or very little pushback. And uh, the response and, and it, with respect to the, the, uh, the, the political pressure he's under, um, somebody on the ground there, wh- where is that coming from? Is that coming from, you know, I, I've seen some restaurant coalition groups have press conferences in New York mm-hmm. City to call on 
uh, Warren Wilhelm to call on Cuomo to intercede on their yeah. behalf. And but I, I I wonder if if it's starting to get to the point where the sort of the larger populace is saying I'm I'm just not buying what these guys are selling. You know, Dan, I wish that was the case, but I, I don't see it. I don't see it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really disappointing to me. I, I can't believe New Yorkers rolled over and died and didn't fight back on Cuomo, for example, closing just New York City restaurants, not restaurants throughout the whole state, but just in New York City. And New York City has the second lowest COVID rate in the state. So none of it made any sense. And New Yorkers just accepted it. And it was it is so hard to see because New Yorkers are supposed to be so tough and strong and we um, fight back and we're, you know, just known as a city of people who don't who don't take this kind of thing. Um, and New Yorkers really did take it. And but even even when really, even when Cuomo, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but even when Cuomo admitted yeah. it, when he was on that, that phone call with Jewish leaders and he said, you know, I got to do some of these things to to uh, give people a sense yeah. of security, even though I know they're not effective is essentially what he said. Right. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. The day he announced. New York City indoor dining was closing. He also said indoor dining only accounted for 1.4% of cases in the state. So he knows it has no effect, but he is damaging and destroying these businesses anyway. Uh, I really think what's happening, and it's not that New Yorkers are pushing back. It's that New Yorkers are just leaving. People are quietly leaving. So many people, anecdotally I know, are leaving the state. I mean, my husband and I, lifelong New Yorkers, have never thought about leaving New York ever uh, we're sure we were going to raise our children there and then retire there and, and live there for the rest of our lives, are having co- constant conversations about leaving. And I know we're not alone. I know it's something that's happening everywhere. And the lockdown and the continued insanity around COVID uh, is really up there for us. And the fact uh, that schools are closed, yeah. As an Illinoisan, I, I completely understand. Uh, when right. uh, we come back with Carol Markowitz, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about um, the vaccine rollout in New York and a little bit of comparison contrast, New York versus Florida, New York versus South Dakota. More with New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz and uh, talking about Andrew Cuomo's state of the state address yesterday, but also the state of the vaccine rollout there. Our friend Dr. Joel Zinberg, writing in City Journal, noted that uh, only 6.7 million of the 22 million doses uh, that were first distributed of the Pfizer vaccine have actually uh, been used to this mm-hmm. point. And in part, it's because big states run by these celebrated governors aren't getting the job done. And there was this remarkable Twitter thread that I referenced on yesterday's show, made more remarkable by the source from the New York City Comptroller, a guy named Scott Stringer who talked about the bureaucratic mess that is signing up to get vaccinated. Just to repeat, the New York City, the NYC Healthy site, NYC Healthy is the account, the Twitter account of NYC's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Multi-step verification process just to set up an account. Then a six-step process to set up an appointment 
to get vaccinated. Along the way, he tweeted, there are as many as 51 questions or fields in addition to uploading images of your insurance card. So that's urban and urbane, New York City and New York State, cosmopolitan, so progressive and advanced. Meanwhile, in South Dakota, where Governor Kristi Noem is leaning on the private sector and the private healthcare infrastructure that's been built over generations, uh, South Dakota this week had the highest percentage of vaccinations per capita in the country. Uh, Carol Markowitz, uh, I guess Kristi uh, Noem is uh, the, not the one engaged in human experimentation, but it's now these right. progressive uh, heroes, de Blasio and Cuomo. Yeah, they're just they're trying to reinvent the wheel. In Florida, they're going by age, and that seems like the sanest way to do it. But in New York, it's just it's just this convoluted mess where they feel like they have to take historic injustices into account and, and really just make a, what should be a simple process of getting the most vulnerable vaccinated into some, you know, ridiculous, uh, just disaster. Um, it's been tough to watch. I, again, I, I don't want to say that New York is doing a bad job. I, I love New York. I'm a New Yorker, and I, I hate to watch these awful political officials um, do such a bad job with my state. But, you know, the idea that they're only vaccinating 75 and uh, and up right now and not any other elderly people is crazy to me. And, you know, we have we have this case where they're just doing a bad job. And again, they're not being called out on it by the majority of the media. Right. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Ron DeSantis is being excoriated by, you know, the CNN reporter du jour at his press conferences yeah. for uh, for ostensibly having no plan when he does have a plan. And it's not dissimilar to Gnomes in South Dakota. We're saying, you know, mm-hmm. that we don't want to run this like a Politburo enterprise. We want to lean on hospitals and pharmacies that right. interact with our residents on a routine basis to be the implementers of the of the of the uh, program, which. You know, makes most sense. Yeah. Devolve it closest to the people and utilize the institutions you already have that have relationships with the people. Absolutely. And so in New York, what's happening is because Governor Cuomo is doing a bad job and he's not used to taking any responsibility, his people and himself are trying to blame the federal government. Well, it's not the federal government's fault that you design some uh, crazy system that doesn't go by age and doesn't take the most vulnerable into account. It's not their fault. And it's other states are doing a great job with this, and you're not. Um, so it's they're trying to defer the blame to, to the federal government. They're not, not, not saying Trump by name, but that's the implication, and it's hopefully not going to work. Well, and, uh, and again, your outlet, New York Post, reporting, too, that uh, mm-hmm. teachers in New York City are upset that uh, they're – being offered their 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 yeah. counterpart who are working remotely are being offered the COVID nineteen right. vaccine at the same time as them. So so now you have teachers at each other's throats based on who's remote and who isn't and the prioritization of the vaccine. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, and it doesn't make sense for remote workers to get it before in person workers. This is just you know it's it's not that difficult to come up with this. Um, they're right. They're right. They're taking these teachers are should not be taking the remote teachers should not be taking the spots of in-person teachers they should come after uh, i'm very big on opening schools full time i i hope that the vaccination process can make that happen i'm a little skeptical that it will um but absolutely the people who are actually in person should be getting the vaccination this isn't that hard 
And um, that is uh, something we wanted to do a check on, too. I mean, again, that the evidence just continues to pile up, even with this uh, the scare of the uh, mutations. Uh, there's uh, stories out now that the initial studies mm-hmm. indicate the Pfizer vaccine works on the uh, mutated strains of COVID. Yeah. So there's there's just, uh, you know, less and less basis to do anything other than in-person learning. And so where does New York City stand? Well, because the unions are so powerful in New York and because Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo um, really bend to them, I don't know. I, I really, it's hard to say. My big concern is that full-time school is not open in the fall. I feel like I've sort of given up on this year um, and happening. And I'm just, I don't see what changes between now and September. Kids are not even being tested for the vaccine yet. There's no trials being run on kids yet. Um, and so they won't be vaccinated by September. So will it be okay to have a classroom full of kids together who are not vaccinated? Really remains to be seen. And it's a, definitely a concern for me that New York's going to continue to lag in this way and not bring back full-time in-person education. It's so interesting to watch what's happening in the states where you have politicians committed to these lockdown policies, regardless of the of any evidentiary basis to support them. In fact, a lot of evidence has suggested yeah. they're wildly counterproductive. Um, but but the reaction, the response in California now, where there is this recall movement afoot uh, against Gavin Newsom, a, a million signatures yeah. on petitions so far. They need to get to 1.5 million by March to have it be a ballot question. Boy, if there was sort of a Gray Davis 2.0 moment in California, right. maybe that would have a ripple effect uh, across the nation. Yeah, that would be a very interesting. Um, the thing is that Cuomo still enjoys a high level of support. And again, I, it's shocking to me that New Yorkers accept this. And I really do blame the very friendly media he gets and all his interviews with his brother where they get to be playful and not have any difficult questions. It matters. The image matters. And Cuomo has gotten a free ride. She is Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post. Carol, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. Take me home. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Uh, Yeah, another installment of sports and politics. I don't know. It's becoming so ubiquitous. I'm not sure it merits its own separate distinction as if it's a anomalous occurrence. Bill Belichick, the coach of New England Patriots, was uh, slated to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's making news because he declined the Presidential Medal of Freedom, saying in a statement, recently I was offered the opportunity to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which I was flattered by out of respect for what the honor represents and admiration for prior recipients. Subsequently, the tragic events of last week occurred, and the decision has been made not to move forward with the award. The decision has been made as if it's not his decision. It's interesting, the word choice. The decision has been made. Sounds like a collective decision, maybe one from on high. Bob Kraft took time away from the uh, 
massage parlor to weigh in on the topic. Above all, Belichick continued, I'm an American citizen with great reverence for our nation's values, freedom, and democracy. I know I also represent my family in the New England Patriots team. One of the most rewarding things in my professional career took place in 2020 when through the great leadership within our team, conversations about social justice, equality, and human rights moved to the forefront and became actions. Yeah. Continuing those efforts while remaining true to the people, team, and country I love outweigh the benefits of any individual award. By uh, contrast, last week, the day after the rioting at the Capitol, Annika Sornstam and Gary Player, two great golfers, accepted the Presidential Medal of Freedom without controversy or pro forma social justice warrior statements like the one that Belichick issued. Can anybody really be honest anymore? I mean, if you're representing an organization and not just yourself— you know, I mean, there are no real repercussions. Frankly, golf is insulated from some of this in part because it's such an individualized sport. You don't have to deal with a flag kneeler on the team. You don't have to devolve into identity politics. So Soren Sam and Gary Player accepted the Presidential Medal of Freedom for their excellent professional golf careers, and that was the end of it. They didn't have to you know, allow themselves to be pulled into the politics of the day. It's just interesting. It sounds like Belichick who, you know, I haven't heard over the years wade too much into politics and make comments that included phrases like social justice, equality, and human rights, probably a PR front office decision combined with some assessment of what players' reactions would be if there was a picture of him being adorned with the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Trump and just said that team cohesion was the better part of valor in choosing not to accept the award. By the way, something else, too just on the reporting of this, to uh, seize upon iconic sports figures for their political purposes. I'm talking about the media, Reuters specifically in this instance. The Reuters tweet on the topic, New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick says he has declined accepting the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Trump, citing the attack on the U.S. Capitol by the president's supporters. This is the phrase that's rinsed and repeated, attack on the U.S. Capitol by the president's supporters. Bill Belichick didn't say that. That's uh, a misleading at minimum statement, of course because of who was responsible for the criminal activity and uh, what they represent in terms of the overall scope of Trump supporters, Trump voters in this country. But that's the broad brush that Reuters wants you to paint about Trump voters. And now Bill Belichick is a patsy for big media and big tech and their big snow job. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Follow us show.com on social media for now at Dan Proft, on radio for now at Dan Proft Show. Show.com <laughs> and... Uh, through our various uh, affiliates. Um, oh, by the way, including um, our new affiliate, by the way, thank you to Clarksburg, West Virginia, and News Talk 1340 WXKX, new Dan Prof Show affiliate, taking the uh, first train to Clarksburg as opposed to the last train to Clarksville. There you go, little monkey's reference. Uh, yeah, that didn't take long for the purge to find its way to talk radio, uh, pressuring the uh, executives at Cumulus a former employer of mine, before I came to AM560 Salem Station in Chicago, I worked for WLS in Chicago, which was a cumulus station. Uh, the missive they sent out to their hosts, apparently, uh, hosts that include uh, the great Rush Limbaugh and the great Mark Levin and others, 
And we'll get to that in a second. But uh, a general comment on the purge comes to us from uh, our friend Shelby Steele, his appearance on uh, Fox News last evening with Martha McCallum. You know, his comment about uh, cancellation, the cancel culture, the purge, as I'm more uh, apt to term it, something he's been talking about for a long time, the uh, quote-unquote moral authority the left confers on itself, and then the culture of deference that allows the left to ride roughshod over people who actually believe in peaceful pluralism. Listen to Shelby Steele on what's transpired since last Wednesday. That cancellation uh, has become an exercise of moral power. Uh, it is, uh, you, if someone disagrees and they have a different, uh, uh, different politics, uh, it's, this is not something you engage in argument. It's something that you are so morally above that you obliterate, you just eliminate it. And you don't have to argue, you can, you can get credit for all sorts of virtuous sentiments uh, uh, when all you've done really is, is run away from mm-hmm. an issue. And it's, so it's a, it's a sad thing to see. It's, it, it cuts off, it undermines our democracy, which is based on debate and, and uh, cross-examination and so forth and evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great little wrinkle there he makes to, uh, to to that point that I and others have made as well, which is the the moral power. It's it's not true morality based on evidence or the quality of your position. It's the ability, because you have power, to impose will, to impose silence, because you're running away from the argument. You know, somebody's disagreement with you is violence. That is a cover story for the coward. You're running away from having to address matters on their merits, offer logic or evidence, win the discussion intellectually rather than through force. And it's interesting, too, this uh, irony. There's a bit of irony here because at the same time that's happening generally. Shelby Steele gives Trump credit for creating space within the black community, space on race, essentially, for a counterpoint to emerge within uh, the community of black Americans as it pertains to uh, political disposition. It's really interesting, Shelby Steele's observations. Well, I think, you know, I think I would not say that Donald Trump was the most sophisticated American uh, when it comes to (laughs) the complex issue of race. What I will say, though, is that he made room for, uh, made space for us to look at this uh, this complex issue from another from another angle. He. In a, we had been in a paradigm for 60 years now, since the 60s, of, of racial protest, 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 uh, and then, of course, always following protest, inevitably, dependency, dependency, dependency. Yeah. The people we're protesting, we're asking them to lift us up and take us forward. Donald Trump made space for another point of view. Uh, which is that dependency and protest are obsolete. They've taken black America as far as they can take us. That now we have to look at a a model, a paradigm that is based more on individual responsibility, uh, on on, uh, on, uh, self-help, 
moving ourselves forward, not looking outside of ourselves as individuals, uh, but taking responsibility for that. Well, that, uh, that, of course, challenges the very foundation politically of the left in America. And uh, that's punctuated by the fact that nearly one in five black men voted for Trump. Um, that's still a long way to go for the Republican Party to be the preferred party of black America. I readily understand. But despite everything that Donald Trump has been accused of being, to see his percentage of the black vote increase at all, much less substantially as on a percentage basis as it did in 2020, is sort of remarkable, as is this great dichotomy. On the one, at the once, at, on the one hand, or simultaneously, the left is drawing in the parameters of discussion because of Trump, they say. On the other hand, Shelby Steele is describing how Trump expanded the parameters of debate and discussion within the black community, made the space for that counterpoint. Huh. Meanwhile, back at uh, Cumulus, Cumulus Media is sending an internal memo to uh, employees, its hosts. We need to help induce national calm now. Executive Vice President of Content Brian Phillips wrote in the memo. The company, quote, will not tolerate any suggestion that the election has not ended. The election has been resolved and there are no alternate acceptable paths, quote unquote. Phillips added, if you transgress this policy, you can expect to separate from the company immediately. Huh. Um, Okay. I mean, I I readily admit the election is over. In point of fact, I think I was ahead of the learning curve on this and most of Trump world when I penned a piece for American Greatness that posted on December 1st saying what Trump should say if the legal challenges that were afoot at the time do not bear any fruit by December 14th when the state certified their electors. But I digress. Yes, the election is over. The question is the pressure that's being put on cumulus or maybe not, I don't know, by advertisers or it could just be the executive's disposition against some of their own on-air talent, uh, whatever it is, you know, for a, a memo to be circulated like that. And I should hasten to add uh, quickly as an aside, both when I was at Cumulus and uh, since I've been at Salem, no one has ever told me what I can or can't say on the air. And I, I would suggest that if you don't know how to have a productive, constructive discussion on complicated uh, complicated topics that evoke a lot of passion, then you probably shouldn't be a radio talk show host. Um, and so uh, uh, the one of the many compliments I'll pay it to uh, my employer, Salem, is that um, they have faith in their hosts. And I'll contrast that in just a second because it seems like Cumulus is either their executives are either doing a cover your ass as a sop to advertisers who are jittery, or maybe they don't have faith in some of their hosts. I don't know, but by contrast, uh, contrasting the memo that Cumulus hosts received to the one uh, we received sort of um, by publication, because our point person for all on-air talent are companies, the senior VP of the Spoken Word at Salem, Phil Boyce, had a piece in uh, Talkers Magazine, Talk Radio America's Last Best Hope Out of This Mess, and he makes um, some important points about uh, the importance of talk radio in these times because it's such a unique medium in that you have interaction, right? You have real-time interaction with listeners in a way, obviously, that print media, uh, online media, 
uh, television media doesn't. He uh, writes, nobody I know in talk radio incites violence. The whole existence of talk radio relies on the free and fair exchange of words and ideas. No host I know encourages anybody to take up arms physically to, or, or, or to take up arms or fight the enemy physically. It almost seems ridiculous for me to say it because no example exists of any host encouraging violence. To say you have to fight for what you believe in does not mean you, physical violence. It describes the attitude with which to take on this culture war. Of course. Of course, he's exactly right. And that's what Dennis Prager and uh, and Mike Gallagher and Larry Elder and um, so many of my colleagues at Salem do every day, and what I try to do as well. But it just is interesting. I mean, if they can, is if either talk radio execs at a, at a company like Cumulus that owns four hundred plus stations, either feel that pressure or are being made to feel that pressure to issue a memo like that, it's another example of just how concerning the times are and uh, how nobody is exempt from the advance of those Jacobins that seek to silence dissent. This is Dan Proft. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show building off our conversation about talk radio in the previous segment clay travis writing over at outkick.com sports writer mainly but he comments on politics and culture from time to time and it's really sort of a layman's question that I think a lot of people are asking. He puts it well. Trump's ban is an unbelievable example of big tech collusion and censorship that should terrify everyone, regardless of what you think of President Trump. The precedent that is being set here by large technology companies is an awful one. If we don't like your speech, we will ban you. If these tech companies can do this to the President of the United States, arguably the most powerful man in the world, what can they do to your organization if they decide they don't like what you're saying? And uh, I would add, you know, they don't like what you're saying based not on any particular standard, reasonable man standard that's often used under the law, not on the basis of any Supreme Court First Amendment jurisprudence, just based on their own political views is really what Clay Travis and others are raising as the issue. And uh, you have had some on the left weigh in on this topic as well, like former Democrat Congressman Tulsi Gabbard, who was on Tucker Carlson's show the other night and said this. It's it's really disheartening uh, to see how people are so inward looking at at only supporting the voices of those who agree with them rather than recognizing yes. the country that our founders envisioned for all of us. And you, as you know, we've talked about this before. As a soldier, this is something that I take to heart in a very deep way, like every other service member, that we take an oath to uphold our Constitution, to, to support and defend it, which includes supporting the freedom of speech of every single person in this country, whether we agree with that speech or not, whether that speech offends us or not. That is at the heart of this country and who we are as Americans. And we all must stand up uh, and support that and make sure that we pressure our leaders to do the same. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Slattery. He's the executive vice president at the Fund for American Studies. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi. Good to be with you, Dan. Well, it seems like the Fund for American Studies, and we've talked to Roger Ream and uh, others at the fund, graduates of the fund. I'm a graduate of the fund, so I know a little bit about this, is um, like the timing for the Fund for American Studies, the import of an organization like uh, the Fund for American Studies is um, 
more pressing than ever because through your programming, both in a professional setting as well as an educational one, you're essentially bringing young people that are going to pursue careers in all sorts of different disciplines to the same classroom or to the same table or to professional environments where um, an understanding of the first principles of a free nation turns out to be really important. And, and it's the only way we're going to pay those first principles forward, if you will, is by having young people in all of those various professional callings coming from the same premise, sort of what the combination of Clay Travis and Tulsi Gabbard articulated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we try to instill in these students, it's not about who's in power, because if you take away freedoms and constitutional protections, particularly First Amendment protections, what happens when the other side's in power? They always think about it in terms of, of their side. Uh, we don't want, we don't like what the other guy is saying, so let's stand that. But what happens when you're not in power and they start restricting your freedoms, restricting your speech? And so um, this is something that we try to get them to really understand. Well, and it's interesting, too. Um, that, yeah, I know there's a lot of international students um, and young people from different countries that participate in fund programs. And um, it's interesting to hear some of the perspectives on what's happened to Trump from world leaders like Angela Merkel weighing in and saying – She's very disturbed by what t Twitter did in permanently banning Trump. It represents a, a violation of a, of a fundamental right in her view. So now you have, and, and uh, the same thing came from uh, uh, the French government. It's, it's you have foreign governments sort of um, commenting about uh, America's First Amendment protections. It's sort of um, a uh, wild yes, development. <laughs> yeah, the irony of that. It it really is amazing because uh, Americans, and particularly young people, have always taken their freedoms for granted. Our international students have always been amazed at how much we take that for granted. And then now that we see these things happening in our own country, it's just, it's amazing. And that's why um, in, in 1993, um, the fund started a program in, in Prague in the Czech Republic right after the Berlin Wall had fallen. We saw an opportunity to go over there to Central Eastern Europe and educate these new democracies about the principles of freedom. And the goal was to help develop free societies so that we would have um, allies around the world of, of free nations and free leaders. And it's, it's been an amazing ride ever since. Well, and, and too, you, you had some help there in, in uh, Czechoslovakia because uh, you had the first president of uh, the Czech Republic, Václav Havel, um, and, and, and his Velvet Revolution. I mean, he was a, a playwright who was committed to a, a peaceful, pluralist society in, in Czechoslovakia. Yes, um, President Havel was, was an amazing leader, and we saw an opportunity to really go in there and make sure that this wasn't a, a fleeting thing, the freedom that was brought there. And so, But the students had no basis for understanding the principles of democracy, the principles of free enterprise. And uh, so we, we started this program, and it was amazing because there were over 30 countries uh, represented, everywhere, everywhere from Russia to former Soviet republics to um, Hungary, Poland, um, etc., and, um, and all through the Balkans. And um, th through the years, we've helped develop leaders who've, who've tried to maintain freedom in those societies. And... Uh, for the most part, it's worked pretty well. We have today three countries in that region, Lithuania, Estonia, and the Czech Republic are in the top 25 in the World Index of Economic Freedom, which is you know, unthinkable during the communist days.
Yeah, it really is an amazing, um, amazing development. And, and um, maybe a power of the powerless should be required reading in K through 12 school systems in, in, in the United States, uh, more so than in the Czech Republic. Um, of course, I'm referencing Havel's, some of Havel's seminal work. But, um, but, but that's the thing that seems to be lost, not only like a lack of understanding of our first principles among so many, but a lack of understanding how jealously we should guard them, how the rest of the world looks at those uh, rights as given to us by God, enshrined in our founding documents, and says, "I wish I lived in a country like that." Which is why so many people try to come to America. Oh, by the way, exactly, exactly. And of course, uh, we are a country of immigrants, and we welcome that. But we also want to foster freedom around the world, so that yeah. countries will prosper on their own, and they won't have to send their people fleeing to this country, like what's happening in Venezuela and has happened in Cuba for years. If they could only have free societies where they live, they wouldn't have to flee. Yeah, and and the idea, too, I mean, this is a a great mission the Fund for American Studies has taken up, because it's the idea of exporting our values through intellectual exchange, not through military occupation, something else that's unique about America. Exactly. And um, it's interesting, you know, there's so many exchange programs that that colleges and universities do, but ours is unique because um, we only send a small group of Americans abroad. Most of the students are, are from from these other countries, so it's it's true cross-cultural exchange. And uh, the international students there learn from the Americans. They, they kind of soak up the, the values that Americans have been raised by. But the Americans also, you know, as I said, come to realize um, the, the freedoms that they take for granted. So it's, it's really an incredible mix of programs. And... Uh, and uh, and and where people can get more information on the, those exchange programs as well as all the Fund for American Studies programs? Yes, they can go to um, www.teachingfreedom.org. Teachingfreedom.org is the website, but it's not just a website, as you heard. Fund for American Studies Executive Vice President Steve Slattery. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I uh, spoke with uh, Andy No, good journalist, Portland-based, also uh, with Post Millennial now wanted to get his perspective because he's been doing some good reporting since January 6th, including on January 6th, noting something that not too many others in the press corps nationally have noted, that uh, while the indefensible rioting that occurred inside the Capitol and around the Capitol was going on, so was Antifa rioting in Portland. That continues. And Antifa's ascendance continues generally. Turns out it's not just an idea of President Biden. It's uh, a little bit more than that. Uh, Andy No offered this uh, 
review. I have disbelief, but I, I can't say I'm, I'm uh, I guess, surprised. It's what we have witnessed is the, the mainstream left in America becoming very, very comfortable with political violence. It, we shouldn't be surprised that other people of different political views are now of the belief that we resolve our disagreements through violence, apparently. And Andy Nell, remember, it was a victim of violence at the hands of Antifa. They almost killed him. Just going back into last year, since Andy No brought us back there, remember this from Kamala Harris' tweet on June 1st of 2020? If you're able to, chip in now to the Minnesota Freedom Fund to help post bail for those protesting on the ground in Minnesota. But I, I suppose we should look for the 1619 Project to launch a 1621 Project to expunge all the statements made by Democrat socialists during 2020's Summer of Love, as Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin termed it. Hmm. And by the way, just to reiterate, this is not whataboutism, because there's no excusing what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. This is called consistency with respect to peaceful protest as distinguished from violence. And that's the consistency that's been applied on this show throughout and will continue to be. And that's the consistency that's been applied by most conservatives throughout and will continue to be. And so I suppose it makes these statements from the likes of Kamala Harris, not to mention the ongoing purge, that much more difficult to countenance, doesn't it? For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by our friends Selena Zita, Washington Examiner, New York Post, author of the bestseller, The Great Revolt. Selena, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, always a pleasure. And uh, since you... Um, Uh, wrote this uh, book, The Great Revolt, about Trump's election in 2016. One is wondering these days whether that great revolt in 2016 has been permanently put down by the established order. Um, So I don't think that in talking with Trump supporters and the aftermath of what happened Wednesday, uh, I don't believe I see great evidence of people still holding the same sentiments about uh, big corporation, big tech, big government, and, and how they are culturally disconnected um, for their, from their um, needs and their lives and their communities. Uh, that does not mean that they are not just incredibly repulsed by uh, what happened last Wednesday, and also very disappointed in the president, not just in what happened on Wednesday, but also after a couple of weeks continuing to uh, say that the election was stolen. Um, A lot of Trump supporters have told me, look, I'm sure there were there was incompetency and there was corruption, but there's never been enough evidence to show that it was enough to turn over any of the states that they were uh, that he was unsatisfied with. And and I've written about this since the election, where they've you know understood that Biden won. They've understood that Trump lost, but there was this sense of aspiration and hope that he'd do sort of a Grover, a Grover Cleveland um, moment where he would come back and, and run again in four years and, um, and or someone would take up the mantle. Uh, now, uh, after what happened on Wednesday, they just feel so dislodged 
from uh, hope because not only did you know did, did some Trump supporters do something horrid, um, the reaction has been swift and merciless in 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 boxing people in that ever supported him. When we come back with the Washington Examiner, Selena Zito, I want to continue on the topic and uh, further break down the left guilt by association tactic. More with Selena right up The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we were speaking with WashingtonExaminer.com, Selena Zito, about the uh, rioting that occurred at and in the Capitol last Wednesday. And uh, part of the fallout is that the left and the institutions they control are not accepting surrender. They're not taking prisoners. If you lie prone, they're going to roll over you. And so if you roll over and allow them to characterize you as just somebody else who, if you had been in D.C., you would have taken a selfie at Nancy Pelosi's desk, too, without pushing back to that ridiculousness, that guilt by association, that white, that uh, painting with a broad brush, then that's exactly what they will do. They're not afraid to say things that are untrue. They're not afraid to engage in character assassination. They're not afraid to, as Bill McGurn argued in the Wall Street Journal, build on Hillary Clinton's half the Trump supporters are deplorables to now all the Trump supporters are deplorables and they deserve whatever they get uh, in terms of professional, personal, familial repercussions. And by the way, um, this, of course, is with uh, big tech in tow. I, I saw this tweet from Gateway Pundit. And, and again, forgetting the source for a second, look at the standard. He tweeted, they stole an election, now they want silence, now they want to silence anyone who questions the fraud. That was tagged by Twitter, of course, this claim of election fraud is disputed, tweet cannot be replied to, retweeted or liked due to a risk of violence. Due to a risk of violence. So here's where we're at. How people interpret content is the basis to censor content. And with social media platforms, frankly, being at least as, if not more powerful than the government culturally, that is a real change in American culture if we're going to abide that, in addition to all of the other sort of cancel culture purge manifestations. So you can point to something and say that was bad, but that's not good enough for those on the left who are looking to score political points. And as Dan Henninger told me yesterday, looking to eliminate conservatives from politics, basically. Well, I mean, here's the thing. The problem with what happened on Wednesday, and obviously there's multiple problems, people die, and our whole of governing and laws was, was breached. Having said that, the reaction has been um, by not just the left, not just by Democrats, but also the, the cultural curators in the country, the people who control how we buy, how we um, enter, are entertained, how we consume 
news has been something to shudder at and something for people to be deeply concerned about. And all they have done is make things worse, no different than President-elect um, Biden's reaction of the day of, which was just to, again, he made his speech made things worse. He had a moment to draw people together, and instead he made it worse. And our cultural curators have done the exact same thing. I'm talking about big tech, big corporations. Um, and, and so what that does is squeeze people. It alienates people. It isolates people. And we have seen the, the sort of, um, of repercussions of being squeezed and being isolated during a pandemic. You put that, um, you add that, you know, with, with pressure from culture and pressure from governing, and, and you're creating a really big problem. Of course, Big Tech uses safety as their cover story, and this allows them to treat those who didn't commit crimes the same way as those who did commit crimes. And it seems to me uh, this is important to focus on the reality that the play is for Trump supporters, not just Trump. And point of fact, I'm least concerned about Trump because he's best able to weather whatever comes his way. Ordinary Americans up against the assembled forces of the financial and cultural left, not so much. Before this even happened, cancel culture was has become part of American culture. People that supported Trump, uh, we talked about the Trump, shy Trump voters. Well, there's a reason why they were shy, because of the potential backlash from either your job or your friends or your neighbors. If you put a Trump sign up or you told people how you felt, this is just making people go more underground. And and I, I, I just don't think it is a level-headed approach to uh, de- dealing with, with issues. And, and here's my biggest concern. Nobody is motivated to change. Nobody has any motivation to stop the divide because corporations make money off of it. Politicians gain supporters from it. And so we are stuck in, 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 I mean, we're at the beginning of the problem. We're not at the end of the problem because nobody's motivated to bring people together. And and uh, among the corporations you reference, media specifically, Matt Taibbi writing at uh, his uh, site at Substack, we need a new media system. If you sell culture war all day, culture war all day, don't be surprised by the real world consequences. He uh, writes, news companies now clean world events like whalers using every part of the animal, funneling different facts to different consumers based upon calculations about what will bring back the biggest engagement kick. And so uh, this is uh, a culmination of what he's previously described. He actually called it the apotheosis of what he's previously described as the hate ink era. This is uh, media companies that that traffic and hate for profit. Yeah, and and this is a big theme throughout um, the book that I wrote with Brad Todd, in that these cultural curators, corporations, big tech, um, uh, news organizations, government, uh, bureaucracies, uh, don't have people like you and me working in them. They don't have people that went to a state school or a community college who grew up and was sitting in a pew every Sunday or, you know, um, own a gun, know how to use a gun, um, and actually know what the word a, the letters AR mean. And so when you have people that all think alike, 
don't understand the people that consume their products or consume their news or consume their entertainment, then you make bad decisions um, in terms of how you conduct your business. And the problems within these big corporations are from within. Um, there, 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 there's pressure from within. We saw it yesterday with Hallmark. I mean, Hallmark is like the most, you know, on American brand there is. And yesterday they decided to get involved in politics. And, and, you know, they're going to lose customers, but they believe it's worth the risk. Selena Zita, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor to the book, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Selena, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show and uh, just a a little bit more COVID talk. Uh, New uh, numbers from the CDC study they did of asymptomatic spread of COVID. (laughs) Here's a top line takeaway. The findings of this study suggest effective control requires reducing risk of transmission from people with infection who do not have symptoms. Right. The problem of asymptomatic spread and the folly of stopping the spread. CDC finds asymptomatic people make up about 24% of all transmissions. Meanwhile, pre-symptomatic individuals, those who've contracted the virus but do not yet have symptoms, accounted for 35% of new cases. So that's nearly 6 in 10, all totaled, uh, that uh, spread the virus who show no symptoms of the virus. And what's the reality that we know? Number one... Uh, if you're not sick, you don't get tested. It's sort of a default position whether – I mean that's what most people do. That's the reality. And you have to live in the real world uh, despite what some of these uh, utopian thugs think you can do with their hashtag campaigns. And number two, you'd have the testing regime to find these uh, 6 and 10 who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, particularly those that are asymptomatic, would have to continue – on a rolling basis in order to continue always trying to look for the asymptomatic to isolate. And uh, we know the story on masks, so please don't tell me this is why it's so important to wash your hands and wear masks and social distance and so on and so forth. Please please don't tell me that. With the the most draconian lockdowns, in the states with the most draconian lockdowns, what's the real world result? Uh, But, you know, maybe... Maybe uh, this uh, will pull it off heartstrings, this story out of San Diego, to uh, you know, go Chinese, uh, Chinese communist with the lockdowns, the you know, nailing people inside their homes, asymptomatic or not. Since we can't identify the asymptomatic or the pre-symptomatic, let's just lock everybody down so that uh, we protect the gorillas. Two gorillas at San Diego Zoo Safari Park tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, the zoo, along with Gavin Newsom, Johnny on the spot. Uh, announced yesterday there's the suggestion that uh, they were infected by an asymptomatic staff member but they 
don't know at the time they don't know as of this time how they really were uh, infected uh, Gavin Newsom responding about how you know he and his family are such animal lovers that uh, they're intrigued by what uh, occurred and uh, and, uh, and and you know working to identify how this may have occurred for any instructive value it may have. Also, I'm sure, and I would hope that Gavin Newsom gave the gorillas a stern talking to about washing their hands, wearing masks, and making sure their masks uh, go back up with each bite during lunch or when they're sharing a meal, and of course, social distancing in their habitat at the San Diego Zoo. Right? This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, rather than waiting to be canceled by Big Tech, what if you take the proactive, preemptory action of canceling Big Tech? Don't get canceled by, you do the canceling. I was um, intrigued by an op-ed written by Congressman Chip Roy, Republican from Texas and Wall Street Journal, because it reminded me of an interview I did with a reporter for Gizmodo a couple of years ago, and I'll get to that, but... Chip Roy writing in at the Wall Street Journal, why I'm taking a social media sabbatical. Coming without Facebook and Twitter will make me a better husband, father, citizen, and Christian. He writes, I'm suspending indefinitely my use of Twitter and Facebook. Now, a lot of people have done that. They actually did that prior to the last week, but uh, many more so on Twitter, which is at least in part, I think, the explanation for why so many conservatives have lost so many followers on Twitter, myself included which is fine. I'm sort of of the mind now as I see my Twitter followers decline. I well, that's good news. Maybe that will uh, redound to the pace of Twitter stock declining as well as people are leaving Twitter. It's not the Twitter overlords doing it. It's people just closing up their accounts and uh, waiting for Parler to find a new uh, web service provider or or just going out to do more productive things like Chip Roy suggests he's going to do. I'm suspending my use of Twitter and Facebook and other social media. I'm doing so not to make a political statement, but in the hope that America can return to kitchen tables, churches, taverns, coffee shops, and dance halls. It's a Texas thing. Whatever it takes to look others in the eye and rebuild our communities and humanity. So it's sort of interesting, you know, the idea that um, maybe a face-to-face interaction will uh, dial down the temperature a little bit. It's a lot more difficult to be a cowboy face-to-face than it is online, right? He goes on to uh, observe something that many have over the years. While social media has proved a useful vehicle for sharing information quickly, I've concluded that it does more harm than good to individuals and society alike. Well, that certainly speaks to the viewpoint of a lot of uh, tech executives, doesn't it? That was one of the big takeaways from that documentary on Facebook and and big tech, The uh, Social Dilemma, how those who know everything about big tech really regulate the amount of screen time and and, and screen time on social media sites that their children are allowed. Isn't that interesting? He uh, goes on, does Chip Roy, about uh, social media and his conclusion that it does more harm than good. It tempts, tempts us to be reactive. He's the worst of our human tendency to respond in anger rather than stop and think before communicating. The result is more verbal compound and less deliberative thought, although deliberative thought is not exactly a feature of 
the House of Representatives or the United States Senate when they convene in person either, but I digress. I've been guilty of this recently, and I haven't always been proud of my language. It reduces the value of communication to statements graded by likes or being ratioed and other mechanisms that don't reflect real human response or quality of thought. It makes it difficult to ascertain the truth about the many difficult topics with which we all wrestle. Yeah, although I think uh, if you see something and you're intellectually curious, you can explore it to get to the truth or falsity of a particular statement, but nonetheless. Uh, Meanwhile, those who make consequential decisions, such as issues involving impeachment, COVID, and election fraud, often do so based on assertions that are difficult to confirm or deny. Social media has politicized communication to an unhealthy level, widened divisions rather than bridge them, fed the temptation to call for censorship of views we find disagreeable. Yes, we've talked quite a bit about that. Eighteen months ago, Chip Roy regales us, my wife and I joined with friends to establish a weekly Sunday night supper and to do our best to reduce or eliminate the use of screens on Sunday by setting rules that any screen use had to involve the whole family, such as watching the Masters or a movie. I will suspend both my personal and official accounts, delete the apps from my devices, and encourage those around me to do the same. I haven't decided whether this will be a permanent change or a long pause, but I believe it will make me a better man, better father, better citizen, and better congressman. Of all of God's earthly creations, man is the only one with rational speech, but we used to have a better way to communicate with each other. Let us dine together. Let us look each other in the eye. Let us sit down and talk again. Then let us unite again as Americans. Chip Roy. Hmm. Interesting. Well, in some states, we can't do much of that. And by the way, you know, doing so with masks on is, um, I don't know. I don't know if that restores or further degrades our humanity. But it is uh, an interesting conversation to have an interesting thought to ponder. And it's, uh, as I said, recalls this series that Kashmir Hill did for Gizmodo a couple of years ago. Uh, We interviewed her on the morning show I co-host in Chicago after this uh, Goodbye Big Five series she did. She spent six weeks blocking Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Apple, the Big Five, and uh, doing one a week, and then in the final week, the sixth week, banning them all together. One, they didn't get her money, her data, her attention. She actually had uh, a tech friend of hers build her a private network to try to you know, completely wall herself off, find a safe space, if you will, from all of these uh, big five tech operators. And um, I recall the conversation, a couple of big, a couple of big takeaways from dumping the big five. One, it's a lot more difficult to dump the big five than you think because of their insinuation into so many aspects of the way that we communicate and transact business. Number two, it was interesting, uh, and this is the part of Chip Roy's commentary, uh, along with the deplatforming himself that reminded me of Kashmir Hill's experience. She sort of said the same thing, you know, less screen time at more face-to-face time with my husband, with my kids. So I was a better mom. I was a better wife. I was a better friend. So it was interesting that she had the same takeaway. And she wrote about this too. You know, it's like for people on over 35 reading her experiment, you know, it like was sort of provided a sense of nostalgia for people under 35 reading it provided a sense of wonder. Like how do you even <laughs> exist without uh, any one of those, much less all of them? Uh, it turns out uh, Amazon, she, she missed them all you know, materially changed uh, her daily life. Uh, And uh, the one she could get by with the most, get by, you know, the easiest not having Facebook, even though she found it difficult because, you know, Facebook isn't just about, uh, 
it, it, there's a, perhaps a more personal nature to Facebook. So, you know, I didn't I think I recall one anecdote she shared where I didn't know a good friend of mine had uh, had her child because she doesn't communicate about uh, the birth of her baby other than by posting pictures uh, on Facebook. And so since I was off Facebook for that uh, couple of weeks where she gave birth to her child, I missed and had to catch up on those particulars. It's just sort of an interesting, you know, real world example of the the reach of these things and how people have been sort of uh, conditioned to share information and communicate important information that their friends would like to know, like the birth of a child, the addition family. The uh, interesting thing, she said, Amazon was the most difficult, and it wasn't just because of it wasn't just because of of her usage of Amazon. Amazon products. It was also because of the ubiquity of Amazon Web Services, which was, of course, in the news after it uh, put Parler out of business. Uh, in her piece on Amazon, she uh, writes, like millions of other Americans, we use a lot of Amazon products in our house. We have an Echo, an Echo Dot, two Kindles, two Amazon Prime Chase credit cards, Amazon Prime Video on our TV, two Prime accounts. Um, note to, and she said, note to self, why are my husband and I each paying Amazon $119 a year? Uh, good questions you ask, I guess, when you start uh, deplatforming yourself. But she, uh, she said, uh, even with the help of her tech person that set up her private network, ultimately we found Amazon was too huge to conquer. Amazon Web Services is the Internet's largest cloud provider, generating over $17 billion in revenue last year. Though Amazon makes more in gross sales from its retail business, if you scrutinize its earning reports, you'll see that the majority of its profits come from Amazon Web Services. Tech is where the money is. And uh, you have to realize just how many institutions are Amazon Web Service clients. Launched in 06, Amazon Web Services has taken over vast swaths of the Internet. Her private network winds up blocking 23 million IP addresses controlled by Amazon resulting in various unexpected ca casualties from Motherboard and Fortune to the U.S. Government Accountability Office's website. Government agencies, she writes, love AWS, which is why Amazon uh, has uh, three head with, with three headquarters chose Arlington, Virginia, and the D.C. suburbs as one of them. Many of the smartphone apps she had also, and she had an Android, rely on that she relied on stop working due to the block of Amazon and Amazon Web Services. Uh, and so it just, you know, you could delve into this and I encourage you to do so. I'll tweet out the whole series or a link to the whole series for your review because it's, it's really detailed in the experience and I think it's instructive. But uh, Amazon was the most difficult, couldn't conquer Amazon. They were all difficult. Facebook, she could do uh, the, uh, she could do without and in, in the, with the most ease. But nonetheless, the experience of it, the way that it changed her daily life, uh, both negatively, if you look at it from a convenience perspective, but positively, if you look at it for a living experience. And one wonders if Congressman Chip Roy will come back and perhaps offer the same postmortem on his experience. This is Dan Prof. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the show in our continuing series of uh, trying to profile stories of success to be replicated and scale, particularly in the area of K-12 education and promoting opportunity in K-12 education in the form of various school choice programs that are in operation around the country. We're pleased now to be joined by Kyra Peaks. She is one of those success stories, family success story. Kyra Peaks is a 2020 Future Fellow with the American Federation for Children. Kyra, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? Very good. A pleasure to have you. And um, tell our listeners, you know, your story of uh, opportunity through education and that uh, educational opportunity coming because uh, of a school choice program in Ohio. Yes, so I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, um, and for as long as I can remember, the public school system here in Columbus has been failing. Um, I attended the public school that was just a couple blocks away from my house, so I was there from kindergarten until third grade. Um, And, you know, like as a child, I didn't really know that there was anything wrong with my school. That was the only thing I was accustomed to, Um, and that's true for many parents and, you know, children now. Many aren't aware of the fact that their school isn't a good school. Many also aren't aware that school choice programs exist. Um, I thought it was normal uh, to see my peers fight. I thought it was normal for children to be suspended. Um, I thought that's just what school was and I thought that's what it consisted of. Um, Seeing teachers spend more time disciplining than teaching, um, that's what I really thought was the norm. I didn't know any better. Um, And, you know, let me make this clear because everyone has a different uh, experience at public schools, but I I truly believe that my teachers did the best that they could. Um, So much respect for teachers across the board. Uh, My mom is actually a public school teacher, so this isn't talking down on the public school. The reality is we all want to see the public school succeed. Well, right, and and it's interesting. I'm glad you raised that point because – This is always school choice is always seen or it's demagogued by the teachers unions and opponents as somehow trying to attack the public schools or attack public school teachers. And in point of fact, we're just saying that, you know, competition works in all aspects of life. It produces better goods and services uh, at a lower cost. And that's that includes education. And and it is worth noting, like I know in Chicago, my hometown, 50 percent of Chicago public schools. 50% of Chicago public school teachers send their children to private schools. So they're not being bad parents by not sending their kids to the local private school any more than anybody else's. It speaks to something that's systemically wrong with a big public school and some not so big public school systems. And that's what we're trying to address through competition. It seems to me what's the best fit for individual children. Right. And competition always makes the other school want to perform better, you know. So I think it's good having a competition, like you said. Um, It forces another school to want to improve or work on areas that they're currently failing at. And so uh, so your uh, parents made the decision in the primary grades to pull you out of that local uh, public school and put you into private school. And and then how did things change for you and your siblings? Right. So after my third grade year, first, let me tell you, I was devastated because I'm like, no, like, I can't believe you're pulling me out of my public school. You know, I had friends there and I was devastated. Um, But after third grade, you know, my parents took me out and they took advantage of the Ed Choice Scholarship and they enrolled my siblings and I into a private Christian school here in Columbus, Ohio. And let me just tell you, I walked in and it was just different. I'm like, oh, 
okay, yeah, this is different. Um, <laughs> for the last four years, from K through third grade, I was tricked into believing that education was supposed to be filled with distractions in the classroom. Like I really did think that that was normal. Um, the environment was so much different from fourth grade until I graduated um, high school. I was in an environment where I was able to thrive, and not just academically, but I thrived in other areas as well. Played softball, did volleyball, played the flute. I had a whole lot of opportunity there, and teachers pushed me to do better. And if it wasn't the teachers pushing me to do better, it was my classmates pushing me to do better because I'm like, oh, I don't want to fall behind. I want to be at the top where they are too. So definitely that push from everyone around me. You know, I developed my character there and I I excelled in areas uh, that I didn't know I could excel in. So that was kind of my uh, school choice story. And currently I have a brother. He's still, um, we've all graduated so far, except for the youngest one. He's in the ninth grade. So it's fun seeing him. Um, luckily for him, he was there from kindergarten until um, ninth grade. So I don't think he appreciates it as he should, but I definitely, this is definitely a story that he, he has to hear too, because um, school choice really changed our lives. Sure. I mean, it'll be, it'll be one, like the same thing, you know, with, I think my schooling, I think uh, you appreciate it more uh, retrospectively than you do in real time. And I think I'm sure that'll be his right. uh, case as well. But um, I wonder how your family's example, the Peaks family's example how that's been received by you know friends that and families uh, and, and family friends that w- the kids went to public school did it did uh, what uh, your family chose and how uh, you guys did in school did that have like a, a ripple effect where people were like what well, did you see what the peaks are doing maybe we should consider that that school for you know Johnny and Sally in our household right so my dad actually once I start getting involved with like AFC my dad was telling me how the teachers at our school school or public school were kind of taken back at the fact that they were pulling us out, which I didn't know then. Obviously, I didn't know what was, I was in third grade. I didn't know uh, what, what, yeah, I didn't know um, the conversations that were going on then. But he was telling us how people um, questioned their decision to pull us out. Uh, He, I also know this as a fact because, um, I see my dad's a pastor, and so he's encouraged some of the people in the congregation to send their children to the school of their choice and to take advantage of the scholarship program. Um, So currently, I do know of two uh, children in our congregation who now attend the school that I went to. Um, So it's amazing seeing that my dad was had advocated for school choice um, early on. He he was at the state house. Um, Obviously, I didn't know anything about this until I started getting involved. Um, it's definitely made a difference in our lives. And so I'm thankful for that. And it's definitely made a difference in the lives of those uh, surrounding us. Yeah. Well, I mean, so your dad was a, a thought leader and somebody that's a, a was a thought leader, you know, obviously a spiritual leader. So he's a, a really a thought leader in the community. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's just interesting to see how that's received. And, and, and in part, um, I think like you're describing, when it comes from a place where you have a trust relationship from somebody, my pastor said, you know, hey, do what you want, but you should consider this. He sort of opens a door to something I hadn't mm-hmm. considered, and that starts to, you know, get people's minds percolating, and maybe they make some different decisions. Right, exactly. So, you know, if you trust your pastor to teach to you every Sunday, you're probably going to trust that he's telling you to make the right decision as a parent to send your child to a better school. <laughs> there you go. And uh, I'm I'm sorry your Buckeyes ran into a Crimson Tide buzzsaw last night. I know you went to Ohio State. 
as well. So yes, sorry about I that. am so de- I'm devastated, but you know, I'm proud to be a Buckeye. <laughs> <laughs> Kyra Peaks, 2020 Future Fellow with the American Federation for Children. Kyra, thanks for joining us and sharing your story. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable, I'm a very good listener, and I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and a uh, conversation with uh, journalist Andy No, who's been covering Antifa since uh, those thugs almost killed him in Portland. He had some interesting observations about uh, the coverage of all the violence and civil unrest that occurred last summer into the fall and continues as compared to the reactions and the coverage of what transpired on January 6th. The, the massive coverage on what happened at Capitol Hill is, is not just... I mean, what happened is significant, but it's being overblown. And then on the flip side, when it comes to covering actual insurgency attempts that are organized and funded and go on for months and months in major American cities, there's no coverage. And then the perception is that there's no threat coming from Antifa extremism. Right. There's no threat coming from Antifa extremism, except uh, if you are paying attention and to get uh, accurate, consistent coverage of what's happening with that movement. You really don't have to go to Andy No. Here's what's happening. Antifa is ascendant in his view. I would call it a, a militia-style parade by Antifa. They were marching in the streets of Manhattan holding shields and in their black shirt uniforms and their riot gear and talking about how these streets are theirs. So uh, they are ascendant and they feel empowered. And not only do they have now a soft ally in the upcoming in the incoming administration, they also have quite explicit allies in big tech. Soft ally in the incoming administration and explicit allies in big tech. Antifa does, not just an idea. How is that so? Well, for perhaps an explanation to the dynamic that Andy No describes comes to us from Mark Bauerlein. He is an English professor at Emory University. He is uh, also the author of uh, the book, The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. Professor Bauerland, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, Glad to be here. Uh, So what Andy Noah is describing about the disparate coverage, the attention paid, even the acknowledgement, the existence of when it comes to uh, leftist violence, not just what we saw over the summer, but even in real time as we're having a discussion about where the lines are properly drawn with respect to protest versus criminal conduct. Do you have an explanation as to why that may be, why those who uh, uh, preach nonviolence from the left when it comes to rioting inside the Capitol uh, are not willing to do so when it comes to rioting on the streets of Portland or San Diego or Manhattan? Well, liberals in power for, you know, 80 years 
uh, have known that there is a violent left in America. It, it goes back 100 years with, with some of the labor move, movements, the socialists, and, and going through the 60s, the SDS, and, and, and now Antifa. They know that there is a violent left, but liberals have always granted left-wing protests, left-wing militants with a certain degree of legitimacy. They don't like the violence, but they're willing to acknowledge, yes, you have a legitimate grievance. It could be racial grievance, sexual grievance, whatever. And so they have formed ways of kind of appeasing, uh, containing the left. Now, right-wing violence, uh, which is a much, much smaller uh, thing, they then have a vested interest in exaggerating the reality of right-wing violence. They can put themselves in the kind of reasonable middle, trying to moderate between the extremes in American life. So they have to exaggerate what happened at the Capitol. We know it was bad, but they have to build it up into something much worse than all of the looting, the fires, the, the rioting that took place last summer in order to maintain their position as the reasonable, responsible elite who deserves to run these institutions. And, you know, liberals have, liberal leaders have an investment in maintaining order and stability. The left loves disorder and instability. That's how you bring about revolution. When you turn the society upside down, when you make people feel uneasy, dissatisfied, that's when you can introduce radical changes. This is really the, the positioning that is going on with the Antifa. It's a form of intimidation. It's telling leaders in tech, in corporations, in, and in politics, you, you, better, you better give us some of the things we want. And, of course, no matter what Joe Biden gives them, they will always maintain the adversarial attitude because that's how they get more. When we come back with Emory English professor Mark Bauerlein, I want to make concrete what uh, the professor is speaking to, give a real example of how a liberal appeases the leftist and focuses on scapegoating the conservative. More with Emory's Mark Bauerlein right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we're speaking with Emory University English professor and first thing senior editor Mark Bauerlein. And um, uh, what you were saying, Professor, brought to mind some concrete examples. Uh, and let's let me offer one to make tangible what you're describing. This is why uh, Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe signs on to a petition to, uh, to seek the disbarment of Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Howley. You know, he has to be seen as indulging the, um, the, 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 I'll be generous, the activist left, lest he lose his sinecure at Harvard, he loses social status associated with being a man of the left 
in you know the, right. the, the hallowed halls of academia. And so the, I think this it, it's it's difficult for people to until they think this through the way you have to understand why those people who decry violence on the one hand w- refuse to uh, to take on Jacobins uh, on the left. And and this right. is the this is the explanation for it that they they can't do that and maintain what they have and their charge is you know to keep the wheel spinning to keep the money coming into these institutions to maintain everybody's status so give them what they want because they can just create havoc for us you know as you said appease them and, and then you and then but you have to create a real enemy to fight and so then they f- go all in yeah. with scapegoating the right. This is where. The, the whole rhetorical game of victimization and injustice comes into play. Lawrence Tribe is a straight white male. He's at the top of an institution that has been accused of being guilty of systemic racism for decades. That means that he has to do penance. He has to demonstrate. He, he knows he's kind of guilty, but he wants to be innocent. And so he is going to sign on. Joe Biden is actually the perfect president for the activist left because he's a guilty old white man who must do permanent penitence. He is a much better president for them to have than Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris has an identity that looks at the activist left on those grounds and saying, I don't know, you nothing. Joe Biden is guilty. He has to prove his innocent motives today every single week. That's why you have so many college presidents who are old white males. Instead of forcing them to step down and put a person of color in there, the whole game of guilt would go away. And then, the, and so Evergreen State University, you have the old white male president of Evergreen State who sides with the mob against liberal Professor Brett Weinstein, who wouldn't go along with the you know all white people off campus for a day uh, activism of the left on that campus. But the university president throws Weinstein under the bus because he can't take on those Jacobins, and so. Uh, so, so you see this repeating itself, uh, and and this comes from a place as AOC, since you mentioned her, is is you know the great avatar of this. I don't have to be technically correct because I'm morally correct. The, all of this cancellation comes from this basis that my position is the morally superior position, so it doesn't need to countenance dissent, and it doesn't need to countenance dissenters, and uh, anybody who stands in our way or uh, does not fall in line with us gets rolled over because they're, uh, you know, they're, they're moral inferiors. I wish that Republican senators, politicians, would learn the lesson of this election for Donald Trump. After four years of accusations of racist, 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 his segment of the minority vote went up, and it went up significantly. There are many middle-class African Americans and Hispanics, Latinos, who are tired of hearing the victim narrative. They have moved into the middle class, and a lot of them don't want to hear And the Republicans are listening too much to the activists in those minority groups and the media figures in those minority groups. They are not representative of 
as many voters as they think they are. Of course, most of most voters still go with the Democrats, but the numbers are changing. If you start ignoring this victimology narrative and treat them as Americans, we're all Americans. and This is a land of opportunity. It's not a land of racism. When uh, since uh, college campuses have been the sort of the canary in the coal mine for culture, um, what's the next iteration of the purge on a college campus, tenure or no tenure? Uh, I know most of the dissent has been and dissenters have been eliminated, but what what do you see next? I mean, considering you're an English prophet, Emory. I, I'm well. What I'll say is the places where the identity politics have been strongest, that is, in the humanities, those those are dying. Students are leaving those those areas of the college campus. They're not majoring in English and history nearly as much as they used to. Those fields are down 25, 30% in terms of majors in the last 10 years. So students are voting with their feet, and administrators are kind of happy to let those fields wither away. Their, their big issue is science, research, federal dollars, big investment in business schools, professional schools. So in, in that sense, the university is becoming more and more of a kind of research. They run hospitals and things like that. So the, that, that's one thing we're seeing. And the purge is complete. It's done. Conservatives don't exist. They, they, they were 10 percent 30 years ago. Now they're 2 percent. So the personnel factor is over. Now I think the issue is going to be can leftists run these centers can liberal actually can liberal leaders run these centers by appeasing leftists while still appearing like viable intellectual enterprises i don't think they're going to be very successful in doing that but a lot of these schools like williams college they have a ton of money the elite can go on doing this for a long long time he is Professor Mark Bauerlein, English professor at Emory University, senior editor of First Things, author of The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. Professor Bauerlein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Welcome back, and to close out the show, build on uh, the excellent uh, ch- chat we had with uh, Emory English Professor, Emory University English Professor Mark Bauerline before the break, and talking a little bit more about the uh, scapegoating, provide more evidence to support the argument that Mark Bauerline is making, because I think he's right. Well, you need to look no further than the power structure of the Democrat Socialist Party, starting with the incoming President of the United States, Joe Biden, who... Uh, uh, issued uh, this statement uh, over the weekend in terms of uh, his priorities for COVID economic relief. Our priority will be black, Latino, Asian, and Native American-owned small businesses, women-owned businesses, 
and finally having equal access to resources needed to reopen and rebuild. But we're going to make a concerted effort to help small businesses in low-income communities, in big cities, small towns, rural communities that have faced systemic barriers to relief. Uh, everybody that's faced systemic barriers to relief. You know what a systemic barrier to relief is? Not being able to operate a business. And that knows no color, does it? But that's not what uh, Joe Biden is saying and the rest of the Democrat socialists. They have to ring their bells to cover the uh, great identitarian expanse, Native American, black, Latino, so forth. None the uh, white shall not be spoken, nor should it be spoken, but nor should any of the other racial categories be spoken as well, because the point is to say, yes, that's a great idea, Joe. Get out of the way and let small business owners, whether they're in rural areas or suburban communities or big cities, whether they're the uh, the entrepreneur is uh, black, Latino, Native American, white, Asian, male, female, etc., this is about uh, the ability to pursue one's economic interests as opposed to be subject to a taking by government without recompense. That, that's the crux of the issue, isn't it? No, not to them. Speaker Pelosi over the weekend. It was an epiphany for the world to see that there are people in our country led by this president who have chosen their whiteness over democracy. Is that to Nancy Pelosi or LeBron James? I mean, who can tell the difference? So whites are unpatriotic now because they're white? White people are bad because they're white. Epiphany for the world to see there are people in our country led by this president who have chosen their whiteness over democracy. Is that what happened on Wednesday? Is that what happened when seventy with the 74 million-plus people who voted for Trump? Is that what happened with the people who put Trump in the Oval Office in November of 2016? This is uh, what unity sounds like, is it? Yeah. Well... Um, this is the divide and conquer. Going back to that uh, that question that Dan Henninger posed to us when we talked to him yesterday, that I continue referencing. Why is Nancy Pelosi saying this? Why is Nancy Pelosi doing this? Because she sees no downside. That's why. She sees nothing but upside in terms of a divide and conquer strategy to rule the roost. That's her perspective. What's yours? Thanks for joining us on another edition of the show. Continue to be informed and be courageous so you can be free. And join us again tomorrow for another edition of the Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Prof Show.